0: You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age.
1: Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with us, as always, is the inimitable Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us.
0: Uh, It's a pleasure, as always.
1: Well, today's episode is entitled The Georgics, and we might start... Quite simply, Dr. Fleming, what is a Georgic?
0: Yeah, the, the word, of course, it ever since Virgil wrote a poem called the Georgics, the word has been part of uh, literary discourse. And you can describe various English poems as Georgic in nature or like the Georgics. But uh, the Georgics literally is a poem about farming. It's about working the land. The uh, the word georgos uh, or georgika in Greek uh, means the land worker. That is the farmer from uh, the obvious root ge or Gaia, which we all know because everybody under thirties used to worship Gaia. So it's a name that we better be uh, familiar with. Anyway, and so the, the name George, for example, is uh, is is comes from this. That is, George means farmer and the reason people are called George is because of St. George, but it, it worked out sort of well for uh, the Mad King George III, who liked rural life, and so people could call him Farmer George as a kind of joke, because everybody who was anybody in the late 18th century, of course, knew Greek, just as today, anybody who knows anything knows, knows classical Greek. So uh, they all thought it was funny to call him Farmer George. So it's a poem Georgics are therefore a, a poem describing the techniques of farming
1: this modern man is served by industrial farming, Dr. lemming, so I think it's probably difficult for us to imagine that there was such a there was a market for such writing to use the modern
0: parlance well it certainly is they they uh, first of all in general uh the Greeks were fond of didactic poetry. we have um uh, a, 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 a different view. We think poetry is romantic and it gushes from the heart, but uh, they, they were fond of poetry that teaches and in particular poetry that taught you about rustic life. One of the, one of the great early Greek poets is Hesiod, who is he's famous now for two poems. One, The Theogony, on, on basically outlining how the gods came to be, but his other one is called Works and Days. A, uh, a that is a poem about being a successful farmer or shepherd, and uh, but it also includes a good deal of moral reflection. There were there were in the in the in the en- Alexandrian age, and then in the Roman age, there were people like Nicander who wrote a book on snakes. Uh, Manilius wrote quite an interesting long, uh, long poem on astronomy, and the most famous is Lucretius who took the uh, philosophical doctrines of Epicurus, basically materialism, explains everything, and he wrote a uh, long didactic poem, De rerum natura, On the Nature of Things. And it's a, it's a brilliant poem. It's, some of it's quite powerful and passionate. And uh, the, uh, the rediscovery of Lucretius by, uh, by one of Petrarch's disciples, Poggio, uh, helped to ignite a kind of uh, Epicurean revolution, which, which had such disciples as Thomas Hobbes and Karl Marx, that is. Uh, so the point is that didactic poetry, poetry that teaches, was uh, an important part of ancient literary culture.
1: So... Is this one of those esoteric things that not everybody understands, Dr. Fleming, like eating cheese that has maggots in it or the
0: French loving every film that Woody Allen's ever made, uh, that sort of thing? Yeah, French taste in uh, in film, in American film, is really something. Woody Allen, Jerry Lewis, you know, there's... Uh... There's got. I I I, have always thought it's just a perverse uh, way of their high hatting us Americans. For us, Woody and and Jerry are great artists. You see, that's the best they do. But so, um, this is um, perhaps two. In the 17th, 18th century, England, though, didactic poetry was very popular. We have, uh, for example. Uh, George Harbert, his poem on the church, and the, the you know different part, the church porch, etc., was uh, a very popular poem. Pope's essay on man is a philosophical didactic poet. John, his friend John Gay, uh, wrote wrote on rural sports. Uh, James Thompson's the seasons, all of these come from didactic poetry. Now you're probably wondering why somebody who has wasted his time reading uh, reading 18th century. Uh, didactic poetry. It's because I twice had to teach a course on classical backgrounds to English literature. This was at the University of North Carolina, so I read deeply in this. Now, what we read it for often is pretty landscape depictions. The ancients wouldn't have understood that. They basically didn't much care for nature poetry. Um, there, There are two aspects of this. One is the People who live close to nature don't necessarily write about it. You know, so the Greeks and the Romans were never – they may have lived in a city, but they were not like a modern city. No machinery. There were parks and gardens everywhere. A brief stroll would take you out of Athens as it does in, uh, in uh, what, uh, Plato's dialogue, uh, the Phaedrus. They're, they, they're quickly out there. and Socrates says we have to get away from all these babbling brooks so I can think. Um, but of course, a lot of it has to do with a misunderstanding about what poetry is. We think poetry is essentially romantic gush. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. Though I happen to, I have be very fond of Wordsworth. But <clears throat> there is more to poetry. If you asked an ancient person, well, who is the greatest poet? Well, the answer to that is uh, Homer, because he who, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. That's what, and then tragedy. And uh, lyric po, and then even if you said lyric poetry, a lot of it would be very uh, stately, difficult choral lyric poetry. Uh, They did have personal, intimate poems, and these have been very influential on Italian, French, and uh, English literature. But it's not, um, it's not all there is to poetry. There are two reasons why, having said all that, which gives you an historical background that still doesn't make you want to read a book. It's like, I could give you uh, reasons why you should study the novels of Mrs. Humphrey Ward, uh, but in the end, she's a rotten novelist with a mind full of clichés. So it'd be great to know 19th century liberal progressive clichés, but maybe, maybe there are easier ways to get it than by reading the collected works of Mrs. Humphrey Ward. Who, by the way, was outselling Dickens and Thackeray? Uh, but two things make uh, the Georgics interesting today, especially to somebody who knows Latin. Uh, to the Latin, uh, to somebody who studied some Latin, uh, it is really a, a masterpiece of beautiful writing. There are lovely passages in each book, uh, especially the story of Aristeus who invents beekeeping in Book Four. It's a, it's a. It's a little epic in itself, and uh, it's very moving, the the death of the bees, the resurrection of the bees, and it's uh, it's quite a tour de force. Uh, But we're not going to talk too much about the poetry, the beauty of the poetry today, because we're not going to be reading the Latin, for one thing, and because we want to look at more general reasons why the Georgics is interesting, even to people who don't know a word of Latin. And that is um, the, philo- the the philosophy and the the political and social understanding that's in it. I will we can we can note a few pretty passages or lines along the way, but let's concentrate on Virgil's broader lessons—the lessons he has to teach both his own time and and our time.
1: But if there are serious lessons to teach, Doctor Fleming, why not have why not have them in a separate, shorter? Home, rather than inserting them as part of uh, this this handbook on agriculture.
0: Well, <laughs> the, first of all, uh, people actually were entertained by such uh, by such books, so uh, it was it made it more palatable. Like today, you wonder why why go to the trouble of uh, writing a novel in which you try to bring out the conflicts that led to the Civil War. Or uh, or the uh, Polish-Lithuanian Cossack conflicts, which ended up producing Sienkiewicz's uh, masterful trilogy. So we could answer, we could we could say the same thing about film or or fiction that that has a serious theme, but uh, in the in the case of the Georgics, it does it is connected. Did with an important American tradition and that is uh, the the uh, tradition of the so-called southern agrarians, people like uh, Andrew Lytle and Alan Tate, a uh, tradition that still has a lot of echoes, not just in the American South but, but uh, throughout uh, the United States where people take things seriously, important things seriously. You know, Russell Kirk used to call himself a uh, a uh, northern agrarian, so agrarianism—that uh, uh, is, a uh, uh, desire to explicate the importance of farm life and rural living. This is this is uh, this is something very characteristically American. Would you say Wendell Berry fits in as a latter-day? Uh- oh, absolutely, absolutely. There would be no Wendell Berry had there not been the previous generation from what he learned, and there are others. You know, Fred Chappell uh, is uh, doesn't explicitly write much on uh, agrarian themes but he is uh, he's a very fine poet and uh, and uh, novelist and uh, his uh, much better poet than, than Mr Berry. Uh, but um but you know the it's impl- he was he he was friends with the agrarians he knew them all and uh, they, they powerfully uh, influenced him. And in fact, it's there, most of the more serious southern writers have been to one degree or another influenced by those agrarians.
1: So you, you keep using the word agrarian, Dr. Fleming. Do, do other non-English languages use this word and this term in the same way that we do as English speakers?
0: They have the word, but the concept is different the originally for the Romans uh for they talked about agrarian laws and agrarian reform that meant and and, and, and so in, in, that meant essentially for the Romans as it does for the French and the and the uh, Italians. And even in the English language until the southern agrarians, it meant referring to uh, the problem of land distribution, that too many farmers had lost their land, too much land was in the hands of the rich. So agrarian reform meant uh, finding a way by legal means or even by revolution of taking land away from the rich and giving it to the poor. It's a kind of, you know, a Robin Hood sort of approach. And although that was a little bit on the minds of the southern agrarians, that is, everybody should ha- – and, uh, and the distributors, for example, Chesterton and Bella. There's a famous case where somebody said, Chesterton, don't you believe in private property? You're always talking about land distribution. And he said, I believe so much in private property, I think everybody should have some of it. Hmm. Now uh, you could say, well, that makes him a Marxist. Well, no, actually, it doesn't, because there, you one might disagree with uh, Chesterton or Belloc or. Or uh, Andrew Lytle, their, their specific political ideas of how to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish, but what they wanted was something that every peasant in the world and every Christian in the world uh, used to understand. It's it's the opposite of revolutionary. So the Southerners, for the Southern for the Southern agrarians, of course, they were celebrating the virtues of living on the land. Uh, and uh, and by the way, the, this agrarian uh, writing in, in America it goes back to Jefferson and before Jefferson. Uh, one of the things that Americans were most proud of is their is their close connection uh, to the land.
1: Well, and as you mentioned, Chesterton's quote probably takes into account Aquinas' notion uh, that property, like any other possession, does not come with absolute rights, but they're relative to... Uh, how society is functioning, right? The, the idea of the, uh, the man who has uh, a barn full of grain that's rotting, but his neighbors are starving, right? Does he have an absolute right to that grain? Um, I, I think Chesterton's probably thinking about property yeah. in the same way.
0: Exactly. Uh, one of the uh, deficiencies of, um, of a thinking about property is today property uh, rights mean essentially the right to get, sell your property. Whereas property rights uh, in the ancient world meant mostly concerned the right to hold on to your property and not to have it taken away from you and uh, there were circumstances by which if uh, you didn 't pay your taxes and didn 't and didn 't maintain your land in other words you made, you made no use of it uh, and abandoned it, then a squatter could come in and uh, through certain uh, through certain legal procedures, as you can today in Italy. You can occupy a land that's been abandoned and eventually get a legal title to it. Now, the, 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 Just follow, the following uh, in the footsteps of the Goths, I suppose. <laughs> well, no, it's a, it's it's good Roman law that is uh, that land l- abandoned land that uh, that is not improved. If somebody comes in and settles on it and lives for x number of years, like I don't know, ten years, and uh, starts plowing it and repairing buildings and building buildings, he eventually acquires a right to it, and there there are legal cases. The point is that in the ancient world, they took property rights more seriously uh, than we do. But because for us, the only right is I have a right to sell my property and to anybody I want to. And that is, of course, nonsense. Uh, The important thing is what use you make of it. And um, St. Thomas was, of course, speaking about the morality of uh, of property ownership. And there's one has to always, although the law should always be embedded in and reflect uh, mar, uh, moral norms; it can't, it, as, as Saint Thomas, more than any uh, political philosopher, has taught us, uh, it can't always enforce them. In fact, it's often a mistake to enforce things too to to strictly. The state, the Commonwealth, the state, as Thomas says, is not to be; it is not to make men virtuous, but to create conditions that are propitious to virtuous living and that's <laughs> this when you when you put those caveats in all of the gap this huge gap widens between uh, traditional catholic philosophy and all the distorted forms of marxism and liberalism that attempt to speak in that name. Hmm. But going back going back. So the agra- agrarian, when the Romans talk about it, they're talking about the cr- the farm crisis usually resulting from a war in which a lot of people have lost their land and the resettlement of uh, of veterans. And this is, of course, was going on throughout in the previous hundred and fifty years before Virgil, the the conflicts between the civil wars between Marius and Sulla, uh, Julius Caesar and Pompeius Magnus, uh, between uh, Octavian, the heir of Caesar, and Mark Antony, after every one of these wars, veterans, and not always on just the winning side, veterans had to be uh, had to be given something to keep them quiet, and what they usually wanted was land in Italy. And uh, so, although they could be palmed off with uh, land in uh, Gaul or land in Spain, uh, one of the results of this—this this would be your
1: preference pre- too, Doctor Fleming—land <laughs> in Italy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't see why uh, why I can't have something. The—I um, remember I used to joke with Pat Buchanan uh, when he was running for pre- the pr- presidency, which I always thought was—I uh, always thought it was a prank on his part, but he took it quite seriously. And and so, what what was I going to get? for being a, a friend, a supporter of Pat. And he said, well, what about an ambassadorship to Italy? And I said, no, 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 no. I said, they, you know, you, 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 that just requires approval. You get your name in the papers. I just want something like cultural attache to the consulate <laughs> in Florence, just something like that, where where my duty requires me to go to, to concert openings and museums and things like that, attend uh, fashionable parties. That will be enough for me. <laughs>
1: You'd have to fight Navrazov for for a job
0: like that, though, Doctor. Yeah, well, he he only wants it in Palermo, <laughs> <laughs> where he already has it. He lives on nothing virtually, but uh, lives on a style undreamed of by American millionaires.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So. The, uh, the, uh, the prescriptions, the civil wars, uh, that, uh, ended with the Battle of Actium in 31 BC, in which Octavian, soon to be known as Augustus, triumphed, um, meant that for many people they saw a, a chance for recovering uh, Roman agricultural, Roman farming, Roman and Roman morale, which had been seriously damaged. I mean, we're dealing with a, a society whose upper class had become very decadent and corrupt in general, not not universally, and uh, had uh, abandoned uh, religion, had become more and more uh, uh, obsessed with uh, with uh, personal uh, hedonism. And uh, Virgil's father lost his farm, as uh, we talked about in our last uh, discussion, uh, uh, and uh, to to uh, probably I think one of Antony's veterans, and it was given back, but then it got taken away again. And but Virgil was given a um, a uh, replacement uh, land in uh, southern Italy. He went to work on the Georgics only two years after the Battle of Actium. It's really, uh, I've talked about it as if it were a serious tract on farming. Uh, that is not really true. It's superficially about farming, but it's really a, medita- a meditation on the restoration of Roman agriculture, the Roman economy, Roman morality, and Roman, uh, the Roman political order. And this was uh, an important concern for all thoughtful Romans at that time. It's interesting that, that Virgil takes this,
1: because I, I feel that Cicero took the same path as well, Dr. Fleming. You, you're depressed about political issues, so you go off to the countryside and you write about something under the cover of, of saying that uh, we're addressing this issue, but in, in reality, you're addressing something else.
0: Yes, Cicero writes about, uh, about uh, rhetoric, or uh, in some of his greatest works uh, near the end of his life, uh, the, in the De Fucci's, you know, he writes about, uh, about social and moral duty. And if you can believe the great uh, Italian historian, Guglielmo Ferrero, who was uh, uh, the grandfather of a friend of mine, but Ferrero uh, believed and argued very convincingly in his book on the decline and greatness in Rome that, um, that Augustus read carefully the De Ficii and the Augustan Restoration uh, his attempt to restore the Roman character and the Roman morale—that it's really based on Cicero—and so uh, Cicero, like Virgil, has a, has a really important part to play. Even though Cicero was was executed, was murdered with the permission of Augustus. That is, Ant- Antony uh, got even with with uh, with his critic. But uh, that both these writers, both these writers, were concerned with the same. Subject basically, which is the, re- the recovery of uh, Roman uh, social morality. Now you mentioned the Battle of Actium, so that's in thirty-one.
1: So, right. when when is Virgil writing this?
0: Just two. He starts two years later okay. thir- in twenty-nine. Uh, okay. Now the um, the the structure. Uh, the first thing I, I would like to. Pe- People to uh, to note, and, and there are many translations of the Georgics. We talked last time. I think the best translation is that of John Dryden in the late 17th century. There are more recent ones, uh, but they all tend to me to sound like postmodern poetry, and that's the last thing in the world that uh, Virgil sounded like. Um, the structure of the book is important because it shows you basically the structure of Virgil's thought books 1 and 3 there are four books the first and third book take up the difficulties of farming the harshness of existence it's uh, it's almost calvinistic you know you you have to work and it's good for you whether you like it or not well and it therefore takes up strenuous aspects of farming you know tilling the ground whereas books uh, 2 and 4 take up less strenuous activities like uh, like growing grapes for wine and beekeeping and both of these books teach you the jo- the joy of a rural life and a life of comparative ease and they're, they're very optimistic
1: so What's the structure of the the book itself? Uh, you mentioned this optimism. How does this work in book one?
0: Well, in book one, uh, Virgil repeatedly uh, acknowledges, following Hesiod, that life is hard. Men once lived uh, communally and at ease, picking up acorns off the forest floor, but. Jupiter deliberately made life hard for us. He's, again, like the Calvinist God, you have to suffer to be good. He forced men to till the fields, and uh, he scourged them with poisonous snakes and wolves. Through hard work, uh, though, the, it's through, precisely through hard work that the human race has made all its great advances. If uh, you didn't, year after year, practice an artificial selection by culling the best seeds you know, which a good farmer does so that you you get better and better uh, plants, then the stock would degenerate. And the, the fates have decreed, you know, that uh, every, if you don't work very hard, everything just slips back. And so he has this wonderful image of a man rowing his boat upstream. And it's hard work to row upstream, but if he relaxes for a moment, then the, the, the current uh, pushes the boat back downstream, and he 's lost all his progress and he 's in fact worse off than he was before. This is a kind of moral entropy in which everything slips back into primal chaos, uh, just as a man you know and so it both what what is true in in a in a person 's personal life like being a farmer or for that matter being a boatman. Uh, it's also true of civilization. It's very difficult to make things better, and even to hold your own, it requires constant effort.
1: is there Is there a, a piece of text that you want want us to examine from this first part?
0: Well, there is uh, the uh, one, lines one ninety nine to two o three have the uh, have his passage in which he says uh, that so the the fates have decreed that uh, things things rush to the worst and uh, get carried away, you know? and he said, just just as just just as the boat uh, does. And he says interestingly, he says, um, you know, Ovid becomes very famous for saying amor omnia vincit, that is, or vincit love conquers all, but, but Virgil says it's improbus labor that conquers all. I, improbus, which is a very negative word, it means uh, nasty, hateful. Work, labor, uh, is, is not a positive word in Latin normally because it means you suffer, and uh, to be laboring, laborare, for example, even the verb doesn't mean just to work, it can mean to have hard times. Romans didn't like to work as indeed I think one of the great myths of modern times is that really it's good for you to go to a nine-to-five job for 40 years and then retire to Florida I mean the, the ancients would have laughed at you no nobody wants to live like that but well they wouldn't make very good Calvinists would they definitely no they wouldn't they wouldn't they were <laughs> but it is but in uh, as I said in books one and three the uh, it, the the it is important that uh, that you know, the, the, the harshness of life and the necessity of labor are stressed uh, uh, to, to the exclusion of other aspects of, of life and farming. So, no happy ending? Well, not in not in book one and not in book three. Uh, Virgil concludes his book with a meditation on Rome's civil wars. Like, if you're not getting the point yet, you know all this discussion of how it's difficult to plant and how wild th- things will grow up in your garden. You know, like the like the man, like the enemy who sows tares or cockleburs into into the farmer's field. How all these things uh, uh, and, and go. It's like nature is in rebellion against human control. And he says the fate of Rome is told in the sky and the sun itself was hidden after Caesar's murder. That is after Julius' murder. The elements are confused, he said, and Rome's enemies are on the move. Neighbor cities break their treaties and rush into war. All over the world, Mars, the impious god of war, is on the rampage even as when chariots race forth from the barrier, speeding round and round, and the driver tugging in vain at the reins is swept along, and the chariot does not obey, you know, the, the pulling of the reins. His earlier metaphor, of the boat swept downstream, is now, he now turns it into an allegory of universal chaos, as Mars, who is a god of agriculture, by the way, originally, his name is probably related to the word death, Morse, but it, he's the god of things that come out of the earth, and so and and of things that go in. So he is uh, both the the god of, uh, of, of he's a god of protective warfare. He's not like uh, the Greek Ares, who is just a, a, a berserker. He's a civilized god, but now he's becoming like Ares. He goes wild. So the difficulties and disturbances of the farm, the weeds, the, 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 the fires, everything that can go wrong, this is a, it's only a hint of a vast universal disturbance within the Roman Empire, which for Virgil is the entire world. Often the
1: second movement of a concerto will provide a little relief to the message of the first movement. So do we get any relief from the end of the first book in book two?
0: Absolutely. Book two takes up the pleasant subject of fruit trees and grapes and olives, which are the most civilized and productive forms of agriculture in the Mediterranean then and now. And now, uh, though it requires hard work. Um, it's a different kind of hard. It's a long term investment. It's not just year after year. One of the better things uh, Victor Davis Hanson has uh, argued, I'm not not his biggest fan, but he points out that um in the in the ancient mediterranean to to do to grow olives and uh, and grapes was an investment of a generation and that these farms would sometimes be the result of generation after generation terracing the slopes planting selecting stock etc so that if um if uh, if your city was at war and the enemy came in and burned down your your trees and your vines, this was much worse than, for example, if they came in and destroyed your wheat crop, because the wheat can be replanted, whereas it may take a generation. The one people who understand this very well are is the, is the government of Israel, because if there is trouble with the Palestinians. In some neighborhood, they'll go in and literally they will cut down their uh, olive trees and their grapevines, destroy it, destroy a generation or, or more than a generation's worth of work. And basically at that point, the people just say I, they've, they've had enough. Um, in um, In some cases, this is a response to terrorism. In other cases, it's more a form of terrorism.
1: I can't believe that you are saying anything other than the the Israelis have a divine right to that part of the world, Doctor. Fleming. that's a very well, disturbing s-
0: idea. <laughs> they certainly don't have a divine right to it. I I think they have. They have the same right to it as uh, Harry Truman said we had a right to the P- Panama Canal. We stole it fair and square. <laughs> well, they stole this land in the nineteen forties, and they've you know they've. Uh, I, I don't have any particular animosity toward them, and they're in a tough—they're in a tough shape, a tough position because they are facing Islamic terrorism just as we are. But uh, the idea that uh, somehow the the creator of the universe gave it—that the, the Christian God gave it this. This land, so they could uh, persecute and terrorize Christians, seems to me a little bit uh, unrealistic, and in fact, contrary to what the Church has taught since the days of Peter and Paul. But enough on uh, on that. So, what Virgil is seeming to suggest in uh, Book Two, and again in Book Four. If he works hard enough, man can almost slough off the burden of sin and crime under which he labors. Virgil is very, his view is very compatible with, say, the Christian view of original sin. There was, there, the Garden of Eden is possible, that is, there is a golden age that we once lived in, and on the other hand, Uh, We also, uh, because of the crimes we commit, for example, Romulus' murder of his brother Remus, we we have this burden, uh, this ancestral burden of sin. It's significant that in this book, the the, the two most beautiful passages are dedicated to a description of of, uh, spring and to uh, the praise of Italy itself as a kind of sacred ground. Italy as he depicts her here is a golden age land of Saturn because you know Saturn is equated with Uranus and Uranus is the father of Zeus therefore Saturn becomes the father of, uh, of Jupiter, the, the Roman and Greek religion and mythology don't really overlap as much as they do in textbooks, but because Saturn really has a character that Uranus doesn't have, but Saturn lived in Italy and presided over a wonderful period where people, uh, just they were like living in a garden that, that spontaneously grew things. And, um, breaking uh, free from, um, uh, from all of his technical stuff, he find he cries out, "O fortunatos si suaci bonorum agricolas! Oh, too fortunate would they be if would farmers be if only they knew the good things that they possess that yeah, with them, you know he." You know, you you, you you till you found your field, you till your farm far from the the, the clash of arms, and uh, you, the, the, the 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 land most just, justissima, makes it easy easy living, faculum victum uh, for these people. So uh, the the even though it may be hard, even though it may be hard. Uh, and the, the harshness emphasized in Book One doesn't doesn't disappear. Um, nonetheless, the, the life of the farmer is, as Jefferson and later the Southern agrarians argued, is the proper life for man. They're Farmers, living. They're living the good life already. That's right. That's right. They, it's a it's a reflection of the golden the uh, Saturnia Regna, the golden age uh, presided over by Saturn. Farmers don't need, the, don't need gold. They don't need money that's that getting gold as fraught with danger, um, as Bernie Madoff. They, they have everything they need. They're, in their youth, they're hardened in work, and they eat simple food. They worship the gods, and they live on to an old age in which they are revered by their children and grandchildren. Now, on the surface, Virgil is like one of those citified writers who have celebrated the, the simple life. Remember uh, Chesterton's great remark: "I would love to live the simple life. I simply can't afford it," which is <laughs> one of his more a sound bits of cynical wisdom. Because people who lead the simple life in England, when Chesterton was around, they you know they all they all were they all had lots of money that they could afford to indulge this uh, this uh, rarefied pleasure. But Virgil, in fact, was not a city dweller from Rome, but a country boy brought up outside of faraway Mantua in the Po Valley. He knows all too well it's impossible to go back to the Saturnian kingdom where men had ease and pleasure. Violence has entered the world. War and crime exist, and though it cannot be... um, It can't be uh, eliminated. It can be dominated. That is, the point of civilization is that we, uh, a ruler like Augustus, can bring an end to pointless wars. He he can ensure peace and prosperity. It may take hard work, but it is nonetheless possible.
1: Does that take us to the end of book two, Dr. Fleming?
0: Yeah. So, yeah, life is hard. But, uh, but we can, if we work hard, we can enjoy the fruits of golden age living. Now, book three is on the breeding of animals. And so here we get to, uh, we get some more. It's easier to talk about human problems with animals than with plants. In fact, sex and violence, they are uh, the two perennial themes of literature. Without sex and violence, you you wouldn't have the Iliad or the Odyssey or virtually anything else. And sex and war are presided over by Rome's two most popular gods, who are lovers, Venus and Mars. Venus, uh, uh, their equivalent of Aphrodite. But but again, uh, Aphrodite is a god of sex and beauty, whereas Venus is Alma Venus, that is, she is kindly and nourishing. She's beautiful but she's more – but she's like a sensible and sober uh, lady. And, uh, and of course, Mars is the god of de, of uh, defending the fields you own. Apparently, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, I'm told, Dr. Fleming. <laughs> uh, now, you, yes, well, I've, I've read that title, that's all. I, I sometimes <laughs> wonder if it's not the other way around. But <laughs> at least so of the women I've known over the years. Boy, I tell you, if you want to really – See some warlike, warlike creatures. Just any, any department, any academic department of the world is full of harpies. Mm. But uh, of course, uh, Virgil writes about the harpies as well. The uh, in uh, in uh, in the Georgias. I remember once that we had this nice girl. I was taking a class with uh, Brooks Otis. who was a very distinguished uh, Yankee gentleman with with a very beautiful, old fashioned Boston accent. And there was a girl who was from modern Boston, and so he asked her, "What what are you going to write your paper on?" And she said, uh, "The harpies." And he said, "Excuse me, what exactly? The harpies, the harpies." And uh, and finally, he got, "Oh, you mean the harpies, the harpies?" And she turned to me and said, "And said, I don't know what's wrong with him. You know, he's from Boston, just like me, for Christ's sake." You know, so, And I said, well, maybe it was a different neighborhood. <laughs> maybe not exactly
1: just like you.
0: Yeah, not exactly. So this, this tension between t- two cosmic forces goes back to Greek writers like Empedocles and, of course, to the Epicurean poet Lucretius, who is an, an, a known influence on Virgil's style. Lucretius, as a as an Epicurean, deplored all the passions, both sex and violence, and Virgil, in uh, Book Three, is inclined in that direction. So, so here's we have a passionate, violent world, and the, the book culminates in a memorable description of an animal plague that is clearly a uh, allegory for the human plagues that strike the Roman world, and in fact anywhere in time of war. I mean, for example, in uh, and the uh, Thucydides describes the great plague that hit Athens during the Peloponnesian War, and that's the same plague that is the background for Sophocles' Oedipus. And uh, men who touched the skins of the animals that died of plague were themselves consumed by the plague, meaning that just as Rome's political troubles affect the farmer, so does the farm crisis hurt the entire Roman world.
1: So in choosing between animals and fruit trees, Virgil is telling us that that man's closer to the animals than to the fruit trees.
0: That's true. Uh, Sex, violence, death, they are even more a part of human life than they are of uh, animal life. It's um, a, a phrase that often comes up when people talk about uh, the Georgics, and especially about Book Three, they, they, um, uh, the Wagner's um, uh, uh, Tristan and Isolde, you know, the the, the, the great death song, the 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 love, the the love death, and that these uh, these passions are interlaced. But um, there are also animal analogs to human social life, and that's book four. and, and In other words, uh, dealing with the most uh, beautiful and productive of the social insects, the hardworking and cooperative bees, uh, who are uh, an allegory for a well-ordered society of farmers. The beehive, for a Virgil, is sort of like Plato's Republic. It's a utopian, perfect world. where The, the uh, bees work for the common good, and since they do not mate, uh, the ancients knew that most of most, uh, the, the drones, and uh, not just the drones, but the worker bees, are, uh, don't, have, uh, don't have children, but they share the duty of rearing the offspring of the community. Each bee knows his position, whether it's guarding the hide or going out to gather nectar, they're all loyal to the community, except for the occasional rival that pops up to the authority of the king. The, uh, the, the uh, ancients did not realize that it was the queen bee uh, that ruled and not, not a king. The defeated or inferior rival uh, has to be eliminated. And he's, he looks, it's sort of survival of the fittest. You could tell the, 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 the would-be claimant, the rebel, uh, the Mark Antony, you might say, he is, uh, he's less fit, you know, he's maybe more corpulent, drinks too much wine. And so he must, uh, as Antony was accused of doing when he was in Alexandria, living it up with Cleopatra. Mm. Sex, sex is eliminated from the community of bees, but not war and death. But when the bees die, it's glorious. They die loyal to the king and, and hive. Um, no human nation is so loyal to the king as the bees are. So long as he is safe, all are of one mind, but if he is lost they they break their faith and themselves pull down their honey they have heaped up and destroy the honeycombs. He is the guardian of their works and they all revere him, standing around him in a buzzing crowd. They often lift him up on their shoulders and for him they expose their bodies to war and seek a beautiful death from wounds. Now, uh, obviously, uh, one of the hints we're supposed to take from this is uh, civil war is not to be tolerated. There should be no voice raised in protest against the Augustan regime. And remember, Virgil is writing, he's starting to write this only two years after Actium has settled the question of who will rule the Roman world. This isn't like he's writing it Twenty-five years later, when by now everybody has accepted Augustus, there are plenty of disgruntled people who wish Mark Antony had won. Maybe they're not so much in, in Italy, but you know, Virgil's friend Horace, the, the the equally great poet of this period, Horace is uh, was uh, was a supporter of uh, first of, of, uh, of Brutus and Cassius against uh, against uh, Octa- against uh, Julius Caesar. So the, the the Roman world is not exactly of on one mind. Now, patriotic loyalty of this intense type, uh, according to Virgil, has made people think that bees have an intelligence and a soul of divine origin. And he he uses a kind of Pythagorean metaphor that they draw their existence from God, and in death return to Him. There's no place for the for death. They fly, still living, into the stars and rise up to high heaven. Now it sounds like
1: something commissioned by the Barberinis, maybe.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yes, I've been reading about Pope Urban the VIII lately, the the Barberini Pope who stripped the Pantheon of its tiling and uh leading to the proverb uh what the what the barbarians did not destroy, the, the Barberini did. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, there's some family. I did once stay at a hotel called the Tre Api, the three B, the, in Rome, the three Bs, and I didn't realize it was in a, it was in a neighborhood once controlled by the Barberini. Mm-hmm. Hotel's gone, but uh, wasn't a very good hotel anyway, or I wouldn't have been staying there in those days.
1: Well it's appropriate then.
0: Yeah. So, but even though Virgil clearly doesn't literally believe that the bees fly up and become stars, but it's a metaphor for human, for the aspirations of humanity toward perfection and toward, uh, toward uh, a divine condition. And certainly, although Virgil on one level was trained as an Epicurean materialist, he has strong affinities with the Pythagorean notion of the survival of the soul. And uh, in, in the Pythagoreans' case, they believed in uh, transmigration of souls, reincarnation, until you finally become, you can live a happy life in heaven. Uh, it's a very much parallel to the Catholic notion of uh, of purgatory where you have to go you have to you know suffer for everything you've done and uh, I always think of the movie um, uh, Groundhog Day where the poor guy has to endure this day in which he made a great mistake and he has to have the same day over and over and over until finally at last he doesn't make that mistake anymore but for the uh, for the ancients uh, they, they, they they sort of, they get to the same idea. That you have to pay for these mistakes, but in their case, it's through reincarnation. It's not as stupid as uh, actually as we like to think it. It, Because the question is, you die, you're not very good on your deathbed. What's going to happen? You necessarily go to hell? Well, uh, the ancients have one answer. Well, these these Pythagoras and Empedocles had one answer. Uh, The the Catholic tradition has a different answer, but both of them are are based on purgation. That you know, you're not going to get it right the first time around in in this world. So the, the bees are a metaphor and it's a metaphor that Virgil draws out into an extended allegory which is the most impressive part of the poem. Uh, bees die, and sometimes an entire community of bees is wiped out and Then what do you do it's usually this usually happens as the result of a of a bee plague, which is increasingly common unfortunately in uh, American beekeeping apparently uh, in uh, in america the uh, people carry bees around across the country. In fact, it's a a Mormon group and they carry bees from town to town, state to state, and so this spreads plagues. And this tells you that uh, you really should, uh, agriculture should be local and not universal. Um, So what happens when an entire community of bees is dead? What to do? Virgil recounts an old Egyptian method, which is attributed to... Aristeas, who is the heroic inventor of beekeeping and many other agricultural techniques is an important figure in uh, Greek mythology and uh, and you know because you know, Orpheus creates is the human creator of music we have all these different benefactors of the human race and to recreate the uh, the family of bees a bull is plastered with mud then beaten to death, and out of the carcass bees are spontaneously generated so uh, you know you <laughs> it's, um, it's 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 a somewhat grotesque uh, uh, technique mm. the The ancient uh, Virgilian commentator Servius claimed that Virgil was originally content with just this hint at immortality, and he proceeded immediately with a tribute to his good friend Cornelius Gallus. Cornelius Gallus was a well-known poet uh, by now older than Virgil, uh, more more in the the company of, say, Catullus in the the late days of Julius Caesar. He had been made prefect of Egypt in 26, but uh, Egypt is a very – sensitive place to be because it was, first of all, a hotbed of conspiracies against uh, the empire, and it was, after all, Antony and Cleopatra had uh, uh, the center of their kingdom was Alexandria in Egypt. And also it was the the granary for uh, Italy. That is, it produced a huge amount of grain. And it was, so if you could, if you could muck things up in Italy, in uh, Egypt, you did a lot of damage. Somehow Gallus was, uh, was too much celebrated. He became famous. Everybody loved him. And he was, he had to commit suicide because he was faced with disgrace. So Virgil had to rip out this passage in praise of his friend Gallus, and instead, you know, he, he took the opportunity and he devised the most beautiful and moving passage, which is his little epic, his so-called Epilion, telling the story of Aristeas. Aristeus laments the loss of his bees as bitterly as a husband would uh, mourn the loss of a wife. His mother, the nymph Cyrene, Uh, takes pity and leads him to Proteus who is the old man of the sea who can change shapes and Proteus knows many things after, you know, it's a, it's a typical fairy tale uh, to, to get Proteus to tell you the truth. We, we get this version, the story of Menelaus. You have to, you have to he'll, t- he'll turn it into this, into a seal, into fire, into whatever. There are a lot of uh, Celtic and Germanic fairy tales with the same story. So the usual wrestling match, Proteus turns into fire, a monster, flowing water. And finally, the, the old man of the sea, the seal herder, tells Aristeus what he has to do. Aristeas had once been in love with Eurydice, the wife of Orpheus, and Orpheus is the greatest of musicians. And in her haste to escape his attentions, uh, Eurydice does not see the venomous serpent that inflicts a deadly wound on her. So Orpheus, although he is regarded as a god in some circles, he mourns the loss of his wife, and so he is punishing Aristeas for her death. Orpheus, uh, as you remember, uh, even faced the land of the dead and charmed Hades and Persephone into letting him take Eurydice back to the land of the living. But unfortunately, like Lot's wife, she uh, looked back and had to return. The connection of Aristeas with Orpheus is important. Orpheus was the patron of lyre players and also the founder of a mystical religious tradition that promised its followers eternal life. Usually the Greeks thought the afterworld, if you had any sensation at all, was a pretty awful, dreadful place. And whereas Orpheus... Uh, believed that there were, if you led a virtuous life and you belonged to the right, the, orp- the, the followers of the, the imaginary Orpheus, uh, they they believed that they would enjoy life in the Isles of the Blessed, uh, and um, this influenced uh, uh, a variety of philosophers in, in their view of, of reincarnation. And we, so that,
1: we see this reprised in the Dream of Scipio.
0: Yes, exactly, exactly so Aristea's solution which is suggested by his mother is to propitiate the nymphs who had been Eurydice's playmates and who are carrying out Orpheus' revenge he carries out the rites and accomplishes the wonderful rebirth of the bees and Virgil concludes his whole poem saying these things I have been singing about the care of, of fields, cattle and trees while great Caesar meaning Augustus by the deep Euphrates struck like lightning in war, and as victor gives laws throughout willy nations and cuts a path to heaven. So, uh, this is a hint, perhaps that he will now, Virgil, the poet, will be turning away from rustic themes to the story of this great Caesar. And in fact, we know he was—he pl- says he was planning a poem on Caesar, but instead, uh, being the great poet that he is, he, he dropped that. And instead, he wrote the Aeneid, in which can be viewed partly, just partly, as a kind of allegory about the career of Augustus in preserving civilization. So the fact that Virgil chooses to celebrate Augustus in a poem about Aeneas, I think justifies us in interpreting the Georgics again analogically as a poem, not so much about farming as about the death of the Imperial Republic, which was destroyed by the greed and arrogance of the Senate and by people like Pompey and Caesar and and the birth now under augustus of what it is fair to describe as an empire that will be run along republican lines that is by responsible public spirited citizens work the, working together with the princeps the first the first citizen whether that's in fact what happens in the next 400 years of the roman empire 450 years that uh that's another story but certainly uh Virgil's Georgics and uh, Virgil's Aeneid later uh play a part in creating the mindset necessary for a responsible and virtuous Roman elite class that will uh as, that will uh, protect the, the the decency of civilization
1: well and in, in your summary there I I once again recalled how we're able to see, as you referred to the southern agrarians and people like Wendell Berry, who our readers are more closely acquainted with uh, chronologically, that there's that line of of thought that, yes, we're talking about farming, but what we're really talking about is this. And I think that's why uh, it bears reading and it bears uh, remembering today. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention to close out our episode today, Dr. Fleming?
0: No, I th- I think we've uh, this won't be our last hit at Virgil, and uh, again, if people have any questions, they, when this is posted, they can uh, write in and post questions or comments, uh, as some people have been doing, on uh, on the website. All right. Well,
1: thanks as always for your time, Dr. Fleming. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire read broadcast rights, please email podcasts at dot Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the foundation, make the most of a dark age.